Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 211 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Stephen Baxter. He's the author of over 40 books, including the Zeely series, the Manifold series, and the Time Ships, the only authorized sequel to H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. He's also collaborated with Terry Pratchett on the Long Cosmos series, and with Arthur C. Clarke on books such as Time's Eye and The Light of Other Days. Baxter's latest book, which he wrote with Alistair Reynolds, is called The Medusa Chronicles. And now, here's our interview with Stephen Baxter. All right, so we're here with Stephen Baxter. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Okay, so your new book, which you wrote with Alistair Reynolds, is called The Medusa Chronicles, and it's a sequel to Arthur C. Clarke's story, A Meeting with Medusa. So first of all, just tell us about the original Arthur C. Clarke story. What's that about? Uh, well, it's from 1971, and I think it's generally seen as his last uh, really uh, significant piece of short fiction. Uh, won a couple of awards, and it's, um, it's about Jupiter. Um, the Medusa of the title is a life form that lives in the clouds of Jupiter. And all this comes from Carl Sagan, actually, you know, the great astronomer, um, who hypothesized that uh, uh, somewhere in Jupiter's deep cloud layers, you know, it's very hot at the center, cold at the top, so somewhere in the middle it will be Earth-like. And you could have a kind of great ocean, a gaseous ocean where gigantic creatures could live. And the Medusas are kind of whale-like creatures, really. So the story is about a, a, an astronaut, Howard Falcon, who uh, goes on a kind of balloon dive into Jupiter and encounters these Medusas, as the title suggests, um, has various perils along the way, uh, uh, escapes just about with his life. But there's a twist at the end when you find out that actually Falcon is a cyborg, a kind of experimental cyborg. He'd, gone, he'd been through an accident earlier in his career, uh, which had left him um, crippled, and he's, a, he's, he's now half man, half machine. Um, at, which is how he was able to withstand Jupiter's high gravity and so on. Um, and that was what um, inspired Al in particular about the, um, doing a sequel. There's a great line at the end where he says um, he was neither man nor machine, but both uh, sides of that uh, divide would have need of him in the troubled centuries to come. And so the young Al, you know, he, that, was, that really inspired him to wonder what, what would have happened next? What would happen in these troubled centuries as a conflict on an interplanetary scale, you know, developed between man and machine? And that, were, that, that was where we started from. Right, right. I want to say a little bit more about Arthur C. Clarke, because obviously he's just one of the all-time greats when it comes to science fiction. Could you just say a little bit about what makes him such an important writer? Well, he was certainly important to me uh, because of his... Uh, very cool and kind of lofty intellect and his great prose as well um, he's, in the, he's in the tradition of H.G. Wells and Olaf Stapledon who did, you know, H. H. Wells the great pioneer of British science fiction or the founder of British science fiction Olaf Stapledon in the 30s who uh, wrote on vast scales of space and time but with a kind of authoritative uh, science background to it all the future of mankind in a billion years and so forth and that was what inspired the young Clark, who was a farmer's boy from Somerset, which is rural England. Um, and he uh, aspired to the same kind of sensibility, but he told really um, compelling human stories as well. For instance, Childhood's End, one of his more famous uh, novels, is about um, the aliens come to the Earth. But why? Uh, because humanity is about to evolve into a higher form which is a common thing through the universe, and the aliens are here as kind of midwives to this process. So this is a very lofty theme, you see, a very high uh, concept. Um, but the, the story Clark actually tells is of a mother who's going to lose her child. You know, he's a, a boy, he grows up to the age of 10 or so, then he starts developing strange powers, the aliens recognize what's going on, and he gets taken away in the end. So on the one hand, you've got this uh, magnificent um, high-concept story of human evolution going on but it's told through the tale of a mother and a son um, with all sorts of resonances you know for how you lose your kids when they grow up anyway so this great artistry combined with the great um, uh, themes uh, uh, that he was dealing with um, that's that's what makes him really great I think 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's also well known for coming up with the concepts for the space elevator and the communication satellites. Yeah, absolutely. Well, he was—he was. He was uh, that, that, that's the other side of him. He was. Uh, his background was engineering. He worked on radar, um, uh, experimental radar techniques during the Second World War for the RAF, um, and he came out of that with an understanding of telecommunications and satellites. As you say, he came up with the notion of. Uh, 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 24-hour orbit satellites beaming uh, uh, signals across the hem- whole hemisphere of the Earth, um, and the space elevator. Uh, uh, he wasn't it, 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 he wasn't original with that, I don't think, but he kind of dug it up from the writings of Tsiolkovsky, who was an old Russian from 50 years earlier, I think. Popularized it and really launched it into the into the modern frame of thinking. You know, in his novel, he proposed how it might be built, and then the engineers get hold of that and say, "Well, this wouldn't work, but you could do it that way." Uh, so he, yeah, he was um, uh, a genuine visionary uh, in in terms of his non-fiction output as well, and definitely inspired the uh, the NASA guys who uh, 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 later went to the moon. As, as I recall, the, the one of the Apollo craft was called Odyssey after 2001, the Space Odyssey, and one of the uh, Apollo orbital missions, I think it was Apollo 10, they they, they were planning to play a prank. Having gone around the back of the moon, they were going to say there's a huge monolith standing there. <laughs> <laughs> if only they had, you know, but uh, but they didn't. They backed out. They, they chickened out in the end. But that shows the influence, you know, that you, you're going around the moon and you're thinking of Clark's movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, you actually knew Clark pretty well, right? Uh, yeah. Um, well, I worked with him. We, we wrote four novels together uh, in the end. He, um, uh, yeah, my first novel, my own first novel was published 25 years ago and uh, sent to Clark for a blurb and he gave it a nice blurb, you know, a promising writer. But then a few years later, the way these tangle of things work, um, I did a sequel to H.G. Wells' The Time Machine and that was sent to Clark and he really liked it. Um, he didn't actually produce a blurb that you could use on the cover of the book. <laughs> uh, but he was, we, we kind of got in contact after that. He sent me sort of, um, he had a souvenir postcard of H.G. Wells, would you believe, which he sent me, for instance. And then we started corresponding, and I interviewed him a couple of times for the magazines. So then a few years after that, this is late 90s, he came up with an idea for a, uh, a book. By that time, you know, he was, he was fully, um, his health wasn't great in his old age, um, and he looked for collaborators. So I was in the frame as a collaborator for, for this next uh, novel series that, that he uh, 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 wanted to work on. I only actually met him once. He came to Britain. Uh, when was this? Early 90s for one of the um, Arthur C. Clarke Award events. That's for the best novel, SF novel published in Britain each year. And I was nominated, although I didn't win. And it, in his hometown, so he came there and my wife and I met him and his, with his brother, who was also a successful writer and in plumbing, would you believe? He wrote a plumbing textbook that, that became the standard for students in Britain. He claimed he made more money from writing that textbook than Arthur did from a science fiction. Oh, jeez. <laughs> could well be true. So, and... Face to face, Clark was a, he's quite a shy man. You know, he wasn't a great socialite. Um, found it difficult to make small talk. Um, but he was friendly, you know, uh, um, uh, I, I think he found it easier to communicate through emails, to tell you the truth. But after that, we communicated mostly through email and phone calls. He lived in Sri Lanka, of course, so there was a big time difference. And plus, he was in his 80s when we were working together. So he'd, you know, he'd be awake at three in the morning and he'd want to uh, work on something. And he, sometimes he'd call it ungodly hours but mostly you'd email and that suited him because it, the email sits there waiting for you doesn't it until you're ready um, but he was what, a, what I learned from him about uh, in terms of going forward is, is how enthusiastic he stayed he, uh, throughout his life he, he'd um, uh, he'd be doing an interview about uh, uh, I don't know 2001 or he'd be given a doctorate by Liverpool University these are events that I saw um, and he'd always want to talk about the latest book the next project um, uh, that was always the big thing with him, but going forward and uh, 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 producing new stuff and the new ideas. So that's that's what I want to be when I grow up, <laughs> is like Arthur in his old age. Well, yeah, and so speaking of the latest book, why don't you tell us about the Medusa Chronicles, just uh, how the idea for this come about? Um, well, as I said, um, it, was, it, it was kind of Al's idea, I suppose, but it was more like something that exploded in the middle of a conversation, an email conversation. So there we were. We've known each other for... for for 25 years, I think, before Al was published. Um, and um, uh, so we, we email about this and that. And uh, 
that that story, Meeting with Medusa in particular, uh, grabbed Al at a young age. There was a serialized version in a magazine in England with great illustrations, you can imagine, in a boys' magazine. Um, and uh, so that had always stuck in Al's mind when we, we were talking about this. And Al said to me, we should do a sequel. I think it was just a throwaway joke. But then I thought, well, hang on, you know, could you do that? So I went off immediately to read the story. And I, I could immediately see how uh, you, you could develop uh, enough material for a novel, at least there was a hell of a lot in there. Falcon's own personal story. Uh, there's Jupiter. There's the whole um, hint of, about the conflict between man and machine in the future, which itself was a kind of alternate history, you see, because as seen from 1971, the computer's going to be like Hal in 2001, you know, kind of mainframes with personalities. Clark didn't really foresee the internet as we have it now, with lots of dumb machines connected together in a kind of big smart network. So these machines would have personalities. They'd be more like Hal, maybe embodied somehow. Uh, so, but that's an alternate history, a different kind of technological development. Um, and then in the background of the story as well, there's, the, there's Clark's general concerns and his themes. He usually, he wrote most of his stories about, uh, against the background of a world government. Uh, this story was set in 2099, so the end of this century, by which time there's a mature world government in place. And once the, once we're no longer fighting wars and spending money on armaments, you know, we can spend it on expansive space programs and cleaning up the planet and so forth. So it's, you get this very utopian picture in the, our near future, you know, of, uh, of how uh, the world could be made a better place. So it's kind of vision that's been rather lost now. And what, again, it was that was something that um, was, was good to go back to. Uh, so all this kind of struck me in a blinding flash, really, in the first half an hour or so, reading the story. So I got back to Al quickly. And we quickly started bouncing the ideas backwards and forward. Right, well, say a little bit more about this alternate history, because you had to come up with some way to get from 1971 to people exploring Jupiter in 2099, right? So what was that sequence of events that you dreamed up? Well, yeah, we had two choices, really. We could either just ignore Clark's dates uh, altogether, you know, but it seemed more interesting to try and make it fit to, to Clark's timetable. It doesn't seem any way to me, starting from where we are now, that we're going to get to Jupiter by 2099. You know, we, we'll probably be looking to get to Mars w with humans by then. Uh, but looking back to 1971, you know, the, we're still in the middle of the Apollo lunar landings. And um, I suppose even by that time, the, the, the investment decisions had been drawn back a bit. They were going to go for the space shuttle as opposed to a mission to Mars. Uh, that was on Nixon's White House just after Apollo 11 landed, in fact. But at the time, you know, space still looked like a very expansive um, arena. The space shuttle was going to lead to the space station soon, which would lead to a Mars mission soon, perhaps in the 80s or the 90s. Um, this is the 1990s, of course. So, um, so, so clearly the history that Clark was basing his story on was was uh looking looking from our perspective now it was an alternate history so we chose to do it straight as an alternate history um in the in the book you have a, a history changes when an asteroid is approaching the earth in the 60s and so instead of going to the moon with apollo saturn technology we deflect well nasa deflects the asteroid with the saturn fives and so forth great sacrifice huge costs you know sacrifice to the astronauts um but history's changed the moon landings are postponed, but the astronauts are heroes, and the uh, the value of uh, a space effort couldn't be have been made more graphic, you know. So the, the 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 White House and around the world were happy to invest masses of money into an expansive space program and move on from there. So Larry Niven, another great science fiction writer, came up with a, this good line uh, a while ago. He said uh, the reason the dinosaurs got extinct is because they didn't have a space program. <laughs> Uh, so that's that's pretty much it. You know, we would like the dinosaurs with the asteroid having missed, uh, realizing that we needed a space program just to uh, stay alert for things like that. And then a, a space program would have brought benefits of other kinds, such as maybe power from space as opposed to from sources on the ground and, and so on. Resources from space instead of mining the Earth. Um, but it would have made a difference technologically as well. With all the investment going into the big machinery, um, Less of less focus on IT, um, artificial intelligence, computing, and all that. Whereas in, in the real world, we've gone the other way. Of course, you know there were primitive computers in the Apollo spacecraft, which were kind of primitive spacecraft. 
Now, we still have primitive spacecraft, but we've got very advanced computers in the real world. So what we, in our alternate history, have very advanced spacecraft, but primitive computers comparatively. Right, well, and say a little bit more about these these efforts to draw resources from the solar system, because you have these robots out in the Oort cloud kind of flinging um, ice meteors back at Earth. Yeah, that's the idea, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there are masses of resources out there if you can only get to them. The big hurdle, really, is getting off the Earth or getting stuff back to the Earth, the big cost of uh, getting out of our gravity well. But once you're up there, it's very easy to fling stuff around. And we imagined, um, this is Al, really. He's, he's done a lot of stuff about mining the outer solar system. And, um, but yeah, there's, there, there's, there's, there could actually be 100,000 planets bigger than Pluto out in the Oort cloud, which is, a, which is a huge cloud extending halfway to the nearest star surrounding the solar system, uh, as, we, as we understand it. Masses of resources, and these things are rock and ice and full of organic chemicals as well. So, I mean, in principle, you could go out there, mine them for water and for foodstuffs. You know, you've got the raw materials of foodstuffs out there. Or fling it back into the solar system to do things like um, uh, create colonies in orbit around the Earth, water for Mars, which is notoriously dry, of course, and source of also um, uh, lacking essential volatiles like nitrogen. If you wanted to make Mars like the Earth, the one thing you really need is nitrogen uh, to give you a um, not just a sort of gaseous atmosphere, but nitrogen for the plants and so forth. But all this stuff is out there. You've just got to have, build a, an infrastructure to bring it home. Um, so you'd have a, um, an Earth which could be reduced to a kind of park, is the way I envisage it, or a garden. Leave the Earth to do what it's really good at, which is uh, support a, a biosphere, all the richness of life, bring down the resources from space as you need them to have a, a, maintain an advanced civilization, and meanwhile, move out to the solar system. So not just have um, like safety caches of humans scattered around the system so no one dramatic event could destroy us ever, um, but also just for the adventure, the sheer adventure of, uh, of, of exploring the moon, exploring Mars and so forth. In one of my own novels called Voyage, I did a, a different kind of alternate history in which the decision to, the post-Apollo decisions to proceed with the space program was slightly different. Instead of make, building the shuttle, you, you build a, a quick trip to Mars. That was the program. The way Apollo Saturn was a quick trip to the moon, you know, with not really with much of a follow-on. A quick trip to Mars without much of a follow-on, but you still get to Mars. So the astronauts who walked on the moon would have been young enough to make it to Mars, at least some of them. John Young, for instance, who flew the space shuttle. So you could imagine him walking on Mars in 1985 and 1986. How fantastic, you know. Even if we hadn't really followed it up, what a fantastic adventure it would have been. And also the science would have been great as well. That one geologist on Mars for a day, to be honest, could probably have achieved more than all the probes we've sent up there so far, uh, working robotically and remotely. Um, so it was a kind of a, a fulfillment of a... Working on a book now was a kind of fulfillment of all these um, lost visions, if you like. Yeah, yeah. Well, so yeah, so you have this civilization, they're exploiting the resources in the Oort cloud, and then they're also doing mining in the upper atmosphere in Jupiter? Yes. Yeah, uh, Jupiter is, is uh, this is another old space dream, really. Jupiter is a, is a great source of uh, isotopes for fusion. There's a, one isotope of helium called helium-3 in particular, uh, which is ideal for clean fusion, relatively clean fusion. But it's vanishingly scarce on the Earth. Um, I've seen one study which, which shows that one uh, interstellar space probe unmanned would use up all the resources on the Earth of, hel of this stuff, helium-3. It's clearly much too valuable to use. It's there on the moon, but scattered very thinly. You'd have to sort of scour the entire face of the moon to extract this stuff. It's there in Jupiter, very thinly scattered again, but Jupiter's so big, there's a lot of it. So you could have floating factories to produce this stuff, exported to the Earth for relatively clean energy. But Jupiter is it, it's not really a place for humans, and so the, it's an ideal place for the machines, really. So our machines, as I said, they're kind of more like androids, you know, the the uh, uh, human-type, human-like individual entities, uh, but clearly with robot bodies, so they're capable of withstanding the conditions within Jupiter. Off they go, but they stop pursuing their own their own uh, uh, agenda within Jupiter, exploring its interior, and ultimately, ultimately making contact with other kinds of life forms in Jupiter. Right. So yeah. So I mean, a lot of this book deals with Falcon and other characters descending through the atmosphere into the depths of Jupiter. 
when you're writing about what's down there, how much of that is based on known science and how much is is based on your imagination? Well, as far as possible, um, it's kind of both really, as far as possible on known science. Uh, but we know so little about the interior of Jupiter, so there's plenty of room for imagination within that, if you see what I mean. So I think everything we we, we, we come up with in there is possible. There's nothing that's actually, actually ruled out by physical law or by observation. It's all possible. Um, but on the other hand, we do know very little. The new probe that's on the way there, Juno, I think we've got a lot of hopes for that. That should, it's only an orbiter, but it should tell us a lot about Jupiter's interior and what the, what the structure of the atmosphere and so on is really like. Um, but the models of the atmosphere that we have are quite old now. They're, I think they go back, well, they certainly go back to the 60s. Carl Sagan, as I said, came up with this idea of life forms in these cloud layers. You have a layer of ammonia ice, and you have a layer of um, water ice or or water vapor, maybe, and and methane in there somewhere, and so forth. This, these components would separate out a lot, of, a lot of organic chemistry from the sun at the top of the atmosphere, so the organic chemicals floating around in there. So you could have some kind of aerial life form um, uh, evolving in this kind of soupy thick, kludgy atmosphere. Um, is it really like that in there? We don't know. We, we, we've thrown one probe in. Uh, when Galileo, the orbiter, arrived in the 90s, it had a small uh, uh, atmospheric probe that was thrown in there, um, burned up quite quickly, but it did return readings on the, on the structure of the atmosphere that it actually found, and it found it was much drier than expected, much less water than everybody expected from you know external readings. But that's... Typical, really, you know, you, 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 you could throw a probe at Earth and it would land in the desert, desert say, and you think there's no water, or it lands in the ocean and you think it's full of water. <laughs> so one pinpoint probe isn't really a, a, a proof of anything one way or the other. It's, it's slightly concerning that the one experimental verification we have shows the models are all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but I think we're really hoping that Juno will tell us more about that. But, but yeah, to answer your question, that Jupiter, as we showed that, and the rest of the solar system we go out as you say to the old cloud we're on mars it all fits in with um with what we know now um uh, uh with what's possible out there the thing is though what we know evolves so quickly now uh which is fantastic i mean i'm i know i'm in my late 50s now so I, c I can remember the first mariner probe going to mars and they sent it over a it was just a flyby they sent it over a region of mars where they still thought there'd be canals not artificial, but huge channels of some kind, you know, some geological features. Sent it over there, and what do they find? Craters. Entirely unexpected. So suddenly Mars, from being an Earth-like world, looked like a moon-like world. But then as more information came in, you know, the huge volcanoes and so forth, and the, the Mariner Valley, you, you, know, you start to realize that Mars was a much stranger, more, more difficult place to live, but much stranger and therefore more interesting place scientifically. Um, than uh, anybody imagined before. And since then, we've had the probes to the outer planets, the voyages and so on. But all those fantastic new worlds out there, really. Moons of Jupiter like Europa with a, an ocean, which may harbor life under an ice crust. And, and, and now, of course, you have information about the, um, the planets beyond the solar system, which in turn sh shed light on, on how our solar system might have formed. Um, it, it's just fantastic, you know. So just in my lifetime alone, You've got this revolution in uh, what we know about the about the uh, uh, the planets, um, but, but for a fiction writer, the exciting thing is just trying to keep up in a way. What new possibilities does this open up? What would it be like to live on these worlds as they are being revealed to us, and what kind of life might we might, might we find there, and so on? Right. You know, my, my dad is a scientist. He works in low temperature superconductivity. So this line kind of caught my eye, where you say that the the interior of Jupiter might be composed of metallic hydrogen that might be useful as a room temperature superconductor or a high-energy high density fuel? Yeah, yeah. Uh, to be honest, I, I know very little about that beyond what you said there. <laughs> <laughs> but there is this speculation, these exotic forms of hydrogen. I think the idea of mining it is, is fairly far away. But uh, yeah, Jupiter is a sort of natural laboratory for uh, uh, this kind of exotica, you know. It's strange that we... We, we seem to understand the sun pretty well, you know, the, the model of the sun's interior has stayed pretty static since, I think, the 1920s. It's fairly simple physics, it's just hydrogen and helium with this immense mass crushing everything and you, you can predict what the temperature of, this, of the core must be. So the models of the sun are fairly stable, but the models of Jupiter, 
kind of somewhere between the Earth and the Sun. You know, it's 300 times the mass of the Earth. Much more uncertain because we don't know what happens to hydrogen, for instance, either the the simplest element in these strange conditions of high temperature and pressure that you find in there. So, um, um, yeah, that's uh, fascinating to think that we might dig down there one day and, in a way, you know, discovering... um, uh, it's like doing a basic chemistry by actually going there and seeing what's going on in this kind of natural laboratory. Yeah. I mean, you also, in this book, you have some like really advanced futuristic technology. There's the momentum pump and the asymptotic drive. Could, <laughs> could you talk about those? Um, uh, those are, um, I think that's some of the more advanced technologies in the book uh, are stolen a bit from Clark. Uh, one thing we did was read a lot of Clark outside the, um, the novel itself. Um, the novella itself, uh, to, to get more of a background of his, uh, of where it fit into his general work, you know. I mean, we both read a lot of clock anyway, but there's, there's no harm to study it all again. And uh, so in the near future, he imagined fusion rockets, nuclear fission rockets, for instance, being taking Falcon out to Jupiter, uh, as in, say, 2001. And the design of those things was fully stable in Clark's mind, at least. The big dumbbell shape, like Discovery in 2001. He'd been working on designs like that since the 50s. However, he was interested in Exotica as well. So, and there were two things in particular that he was, that, that, that caught his attention in his later life. One was the idea of an inertialist drive, where you could somehow take away the inertia of an object, like making it massless. And, you know, the photon particle of light is massless and it zips off at the speed of light. So the idea being that if you remove the inertia, this quality from from uh, um, uh, a massive object, it could be either very easy to move or, or simply move spontaneously at very high velocities, the inertialist drive. Um, I think that's, that's, in a way, that's become more plausible in a sense in recent years because of the Higgs boson, you know, the Higgs boson is this exotic particle of, which which gives other particles mass. Strangely, so ma- so mass is imbued by this boson. If you could somehow turn the boson off or detach it from a body, then you could reduce the mass and, and so reduce the inertia. Uh, or maybe inertia is something to do with being coupled into space time. That's another speculative possibility. So we pinched that from Clark really. Um, as a, as a, and the momentum pump is another variant of that, you know, how you could move a moon with a small engine. Uh, it, this is pushing at the boundaries, but there are speculative papers that you can find on, on really at the fringe of physics on how this kind of thing might be done. But I think the, really the, the reason there's room in physics for, for doing that kind of thing is because physics is so incomplete. You know, the, um, you have, We've got a very good model of the large-scale universe in general relativity, so gravity and the evolution of the stars and the motion of the galaxies and all of that, the expansion of the universe. And on the very small scale, quantum mechanics, um, which has been tested to many decimal places, as indeed has relativity with things like the recent detection of gravity waves, two fantastically well-founded theories of the small and the large, but we don't have a good theory of where they meet in the middle, which is quantum gravity. so, you know, I know there are many models of it around the string theory, but this, uh, that's still uh, um, uh, elusive, I would say. Um, and that's where uh, these exotic possibilities like hyperdrives and inertialist drives and so forth might lurk, uh, which is great for the science fiction writer. If you want something uh, beyond the known, then you go for that. Personally, and, and Clark did this as well, you know, he would fill his books with afterwards listing the references for these speculations on the hyperdrives and so forth. So it's it's not authoritative. This is only guesswork, but at least it's educated guesswork about how this thing might be possible, um, which makes it all the more interesting that this thing might happen one day. It's not magic, you know, it, but it's very speculative science. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the wildest ideas in this book is one of the characters talks about enclosing the entire planet of Saturn in kind of a shell that people could walk on and live on. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, I, th- I think that, in a way, is uh, less fantastic than some, because the the uh, the, uh, the the gravity of the surface of Saturn is only about one g, uh, the same as the Earth's. So a structure that's capable of withstanding one g, you know, would be able to withstand, um, uh, uh, will be able to support itself 
if you could build a thing in the first place. It's not like, say, Larry Niven's Ringworld, you know, this belt whirling around the sun, or a sun, uh, so fast that it's, it gives you a spin gravity of, of, of 1G, um, but it's so big that it's about the same distance as the Earth is from the sun, uh, 100 million miles or so. Um, and the stresses on that will be similar to the stresses on uh, that hold the, uh, the nucleus of an atom together. So that's a pretty exotic material you need to build that. <laughs> but to build, I suspect that you could build uh, a shell around Saturn of fairly, um, you might need some magic carbon nanofiber tubing, that sort of stuff, <laughs> but not beyond the bounds of, of, of possibility. Um, but the, the, the big trick with that, of course, will be building it in the first place, uh, assembling the material um, and so forth. Probably the way to do it will be to lift material off Saturn somehow. Um, mine Saturn for the material itself and build it somehow in place. So I think as mega structures go, you know, that's a, it's relatively plausible. Um, which uh, 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 and it's a pleasing thought. One one strange thing that uh, that was my 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 personal one of my personal contributions to the book, uh, which I dreamed up knowing that Saturn had a a, a a gravity of about one g about the same as the Earth. But then I started to wonder how come a gas giant like Saturn has got a similar gravity to the Earth? How can that be so? Even Jupiter, it's only a couple of times or three times Earth's gravity, so it's similar. And there, there, there have now been studies of the exoplanets, the planets beyond the solar system, showing a, a strange kind of convergence of planetary formation or a coincidence of planetary formation that you get about a G. The big rocky planets compress uh, uh, and sort of stabilize their gravity at about a G, and then the gas giants as well seem to diffuse out to a certain size, so that you've got much larger masses, but they're so big that the gravity again is about a G or a couple of G. So it's a strange thing that being adapted to a gravity well of about a G, it doesn't suit you to live on the moon, which is only a sixth of a G, or on, you know, in, in, in a space habitat with zero G, but it actually suits you quite well to live on a, a lot of worlds around the universe where the gravity is, you know, near to 1G more or less, even even a shell around a gas giant would give you, give you about a G. So, yeah, my interesting fact for the day. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, yeah, so you said that that was one of your contributions. Could you just kind of lay out what, like, you and Al Reynolds working together, kind of what you each brought to this project? Well, the, the way we actually, we, we, we had a, a quick fire... Um, uh, exchange of emails and ideas to begin with and phone calls coming up with a lot of ideas then we met face to face at the World SF Convention in London in 2014 uh, just for half a day but by then we had masses of material and ideas and, and, and I think the good notion of how we go forward but we came up with a with a breakdown there of we put the thing into six parts the whole thing was going to be episodic anyway because it's it, the troubled century is going off through the future, the chronicles of, the, of this imaginary future. So it naturally broke down into episodes, which we could split up between us. Um, and I think, my, and roughly speaking, I did more of the earlier episodes, including the alternate history with, of, of the Apollo days. Al did more of the later episodes out in the solar system. Originally, we were going to go out to the stars as well, but in the end, we, we stayed in the, in the solar system. Uh, and I think that's a, a slight uh, that shows a slight difference of, uh, of bias there. Um, I've done the grand, uh, very far future stuff in, in, in my own novels, but also a lot of alternate histories, near future kind of of, of, of of books as well. And Al is somewhere in the middle of that, you know, off in the middle distance when we're out in the old cloud, uh, but not yet reached the stars. Uh, so that was one difference, I think. You know, our personal preferences for chunks of the time scale in a way. Uh, but the, there is another difference which uh, some of the reviews have picked up, which is uh, a difference in style. I think I'm a bit more like Clark in in, in writing style, slightly more uh, cerebral in a way and cooler, and the characters are um, interact in a fairly um, restrained way. Um, um, they, they feel deeply, but they don't necessarily act on impulse, that's, that sort of thing. You know, so at one point, what Falcon watches the machines take over the Earth. As an observer, he's coolly reporting what happens. He is angry and it, he's, he's, he's newly motivated to take on the machines again, but he, he, he takes it coolly. Al, though, is a more kind of visceral writer, I think. He, um, 
gets into the guts of the characters. He he has very physical confrontations between them. He writes in a very physical way as well. You know, you you see the quivering lips and the clenched fists and so forth. So his confrontations were much more vivid, I think, in that way. Interpersonal confrontations. Uh, in the end, you know, we we wrote these chunks, put them together, and went through the book several times, uh, um, smoothing out the joins, if you like, rewriting all the sections together. So I think the the differences in style smoothed away in the end to, to some extent. But I think that I think they're probably still there. Um, but that's okay. It's, it isn't a Clark book, you know. It's not. It's not a Baxter or a Reynolds book either. It's, it's a kind of um, uh, uh, something in between. Yeah, there's actually a funny story I heard about the first time you met Al Reynolds. Could you tell that story? Oh yeah, this is well. As I said, we we, we met at uh, uh, about 25 years ago, I think, and it was at a 65th birthday party for Brian Aldiss, the the great writer, uh, which was being run by Interzone, which is a, a short short fiction magazine that we both, I think, we both got our first breaks in in, in there. Uh, Al's about 10 years younger than me, uh, which matters a lot less now. But back then, so I'd be mid 30s, Al was mid 20s, and I, I was that little bit ahead, you know, a couple of books published. Al was just starting out, and he comes up to me slightly starstruck, you know, and he said to me, oh, Steve, nice to meet you. He said, of the previous generation of writers, you're the one who most inspires me. <laughs> so I'm 35, I felt like 105. <laughs> I felt like H.G. Wells, you know. So, but I, you know, it was all a, a slightly shy and awkward moment, you know, but, but I, I tease Al about that regularly <laughs> ever since. Right, and you put an actual a scene in this book, right, that was inspired by that? Uh, yes, um, that's right. Somewhere near the beginning. So you, you have Falcon who goes to, uh, Jupiter. It's in, actually in Clark's novella. Um, a guy called Springer lands on Pluto in the same year. So you have these two big events during the year 2099. At the end of the year, they're both invited to a, a, a big oceanic event with the world president to see in the new year. And, uh, and Springer, this guy, he's a, He's more of a, he's more media savvy than our rather clumsy cyborg hero, Falcon. So, so trailed by cameramen and so on, you know, Springer walks up to this guy and goes, Falcon, oh yes, you're, what a great guy you're. Of the previous generation of, of explorers, you're one of, you're, you're, you're my big inspiration. Ooh, and then he's called away from the photo shoot, <laughs> leaving Falcon seething. <laughs> so yes, that's, uh, we smuggle that in there, yes. Yeah. Well, actually, okay. So, speaking of the world president, you mentioned that in Clark's world, in, in Clark's universe, there's this world government. Yeah. And obviously, like in, in as we're recording this, there was just the Brexit vote for uh, England yeah. to leave the EU. And I'm just wondering what you think about the prospects of world government from our current vantage. Yeah. Well, Clark, he didn't write a, a consistent universe. Um, uh, although some of his books, the 2001 series, four books, that did fit into this a single universe. But he did have these consistent themes. And one of them, yeah, was the emergence of a world government, which he thought would come about peacefully, I think, thanks to mostly communication, uh, global communication. Were, that would spread education, for one thing, uh, and just increasing um, our global awareness. You know, if you can see the other guy suffering, it makes you less willing to go to war. Um, so, so his technological interests mapped down onto those kind of political interests. He'd known Olaf Stapleton, I mentioned, who was a great visionary of political future and a future without war. He was never a political activist, I don't think, but he, that, that very much influenced him. He saw this, this is the way for an advanced society to go. And of course, he was a generation who lived through the Second World War. And after the war, you got, you did get great global institutions emerging. The, uh, United Nations, for one thing. Yeah, but also the European Union starting off as a, an economic community. Um, so a kind of regional template of the world government. And, and it, it, so it had economic goals, but its big political goal was to stop war between France and Germany. Germany unified in 1870 by attacking France <laughs> under Bismarck. Um, and it worked, you know, uh, from the Germans' point of view. But France and Germany went to war three times in 70 years, between 1870 and, and 1940. And so this clearly could not go on. It was like a huge European civil war. So the European Union began as a peacekeeping organization specifically to keep France and Germany from going to war again. And it's worked, hasn't it? You know, it's uh, they are now 
closely united at the heart of this European project. Um, Britain and other countries joined later. And, and Britain has always had a more of a tradition of independence from Europe. You know, to, to Britain, Europe was a problem. Um, even when we weren't actively at war with the one chunk of it or another, Britain saw itself as, as kind of managing Europe uh, in, a, in a rather superior way, balancing off one side against the other, maintaining trade and so forth. So we had the tradition of independence. Um, uh, and and well, that was reinforced really during the Second World War, I suppose, when Britain stood alone for a while against Hitler after France had fallen and Belgium, Belgium had fallen. Uh, however, yes, eventually we joined. We didn't go all the way in. You know, the European Union has a single currency spanning uh, Spain to Poland. You know, it's quite remarkable. The widest scattering of a, of a, of a currency union like that since Roman times. Britain stayed out because it could see the economic disadvantages as well as the political advantages. So the European Union, it, it's a great political project, and I'm sure Clark would have agreed with that. However, on the, in practical terms, it's, it's far from perfect. You, uh, there's what uh, uh, the British call a democratic deficit in there. You know, it's difficult to see how, when I cast my vote in an election in Britain, I'm influencing what goes on in Brussels at the level of the European Parliament. There are direct elections to the parliament, but the, the powers are split all over the place. Um, and when countries have problems with various aspects of the economic settlement, Greece, for instance, recently going into recession, uh, the, the, the central authorities can be pretty tough. So it's quite a flawed union, you know. Uh, you, you give up certain powers, and yet you don't seem to have the, the democratic mandate to control it. However, in, in my view, personally, it's, it, it, it's clearly a step in the right direction compared to what was there 100 years ago, let's say when we were immersed in the First World War. Um, but uh, but no, there's always been a lot of discontent at, in, in Britain at being uh, involved in the thing in the first place. And so we had this this, this very close vote. I think most commentators would say it, it was a vote about other things than the European Union, or in, in addition to the European Union. Um, late capitalism, you know, uh, uh, the, 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 the continual erosion of traditional industries, the great migration crises that we face in Europe, from partly from climate problems, but also from political problems in the Middle East, all of that stuff is very destabilizing. And so I think, I think there's a certain protest vote uh, against that. Uh, my, my own personal view is fairly sanguine. I voted to remain in, but I'm not too concerned that we voted out because, we were, as I said, we were partly out anyway. We weren't in a single currency. So I think we go from one level of detachment to a slightly wider level of detachment. Um, and I do think global action is in the end is, is necessary you know we because we face global problems the migration crises climate change resource depletion all these things are going to hit us on a global level and so for instance the un organized um climate change uh, uh, uh initiatives imperfect as they are all those seem entirely in the right um, uh, direction to go to me. You know, we, we have to work as a species to manage the planet. And it's our shared home after all, um, uh, and do it together. And for all its imperfections, for all, you know, it, this is democracy in action in a way. It's all, it's all one big argument. Uh, I think we're, we're slowly moving towards that kind of um, um, arrangement with more power effectively being invested in the international and global institutions and less at the national level. But I do think the big challenge, as Europe has shown, is, is democratic, democratic legitimacy. I bet Americans would say the same thing. You know, you want to be able to vote that guy out, whether he's your local mayor or he's the world president. You've got to be able to vote the guy out. Um, otherwise, you know, uh, you're not going to accept the deal. So I think I, I think we're at a bump in the road uh, from from that point of view. And I'm not actually sure how Clark himself would have voted actually if, if he'd had the vote and been around. I think he would have railed against the, you know, the democratic deficiency of the. Of the actuality versus the the goals of the post-war founders. So it's, yeah, it's, it it is kind of interesting that we publish a vote a book about the world government just as Britain <laughs> leaves a European government. But uh, yeah, I suppose it it shows up the issues. Right. Well, you you've mentioned that you're a big fan of H. G. Wells, who also campaigned for a world government. And I, I saw you say in an interview that you were actually pretty critical of his conception of that. I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about that. Yeah, Wells, um, that's my other big project at the moment. I'm, I'm doing a sequel to The War of the Worlds by, by Wells, which will be called The Massacre of Mankind, and that'll be out next year, which is like, it's like another collaboration, actually. The same as working with 
Al and with Clark, you know, you read around the, the guy's work. Um, but yeah, he was a, he could clearly see what was wrong with late Victorian society and so Edwardian society. Um, he abhorred the war, the First World War when it came along. Um, and he had, he, he, and his vision of the future was clear in some ways, I would say, but flawed in other ways. He could see the need for universal education for a start. Um, proper education for women, uh, which he saw as a great resource, a great waste of, um, of human potential. Um, you, you, uh, some things are also uh, of his time, you know, he was a great one for clean, cleaning up the cities, clean streets. You have a lot of filth in the, in the contemporary cities in which his books are set. But the futuristic city is always very clean. Because you imagine, you know, it's the, it's the late age of the horse, everything's full of horse dung and rubbish and the streets are black, the cities are black from soot. So we wanted cleanliness and education and good food and so forth. Um, but how to achieve that? Um, in a modern utopia, for instance, which is his most striking fictional version of this, um, that's a, it's actually an alternate history which develops from a Roman empire that never fell. But they have a kind of senate of self-appointed um, scientific minds who run everything on behalf of everybody else. So at that point in his life, this is about 1905, I think he thought democracy was a bit of a bust. Uh, you had to give up control to, to, to the smart people. Um, and they would run things for us. They, they'd allocate our education for us. They'd um, um, weed out defectives from society one way or the other and send them off to colonies elsewhere. Um, and he couldn't seem to see where this kind of scientific government was liable to lead. Um, and it led, of course, to Nazi Germany, that kind of idea. Um, a scientific elite, scientific running of, of humanity, a scientific categorization of humanity, kind of quasi-scientific in a way, leads directly in the end to eugenics and and uh, the gas ovens, unfortunately. So Wells lived long enough to see the Second World War come about and the horrors of Nazi Germany. And George Orwell, who wrote 1984 later, he skewered Wells really with one quote. He said, Nazi Germany is what you've been arguing for all your life. So that's why uh, you, I think you have to be critical, in, in retrospect at least, of Wells. He had this great vision of a, a unified utopian world. Um, but early in his life, he couldn't seem to see that um, uh, scientists aren't to be trusted, basically. Nobody is to, is to be trusted. As Churchill said, dem democracy is the worst system of government in the world, except for all the others. <laughs> <laughs> at least you can vote the guy out, you know. Um, uh, I, Wells did evolve his views later in life very greatly. And he was involved actually towards the end of his life in the, he died in 1946, but towards the, in the later stages of the war, they were already planning for the peace and the founding of the UN. And Wells was very influential in getting the Declaration of the Rights of Man drawn up, uh, uh, the International Declaration as, as accepted by the UN and later by bodies like Europe. Uh, I think if, if for nothing else, he should be remembered for that. You know, he, he kind of seen the follies of his ways. So rather than, by the end, rather than prescribing forms of world government, he was he was looking for ways to in, ensure, go to the, right to the other end, you know, ensure the rights of the individual to a fair life and a decent education and so forth. So, yeah, you, you have to, I think he will be critical, I think, of, of, his, of his early musings. But, you know, we all learn by experience, don't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so yes, yeah, so you've mentioned that you you collaborated with Clark and Alistair Reynolds, and in a way with H.G. Wells. You also collaborated with Terry Pratchett. I was yes, just wondering yes. if you could say, like, are there any marked differences between working with these different authors? Um, well, well I, th I think the, the the commonality is maybe I've been lucky with my collaborators, but the com commonality is basically enthusiasm for the stuff, you know. We, we'd all had a, a background in the stuff that we'd read, even with Clark, um, that was true, who was, uh, what, uh, 40 years older than me. Um, uh, so enthusiasm for the background, for the material, and for, 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 the, for the actual writing itself. Uh, but obviously, Clark, uh, Terry was a very different writer to, to either Al or, or, or Clark. He, but he was a science fiction fan as a, as, a, as a young reader. His first stories were science fiction. I think what he really wanted to be was an SF writer. His first couple of novels were SF, in fact. Uh, I, he actually met Clark when he was, Terry was about 16, a young fan, and Clark was kind to him. So he always called Clark Uncle Arthur after that. <laughs> Not to his face, but, you know, he, that was his position in the genre as far as Terry was concerned. Uh, but, but yeah, Terry was quite different in, by the time I worked with him, so he'd gone through the whole of Discworld, of course. Uh, 
and he developed that very um, dry, humorous voice on the one hand. And his, his approach to characters was quite different. So we had a big science fictional frame. Uh, the project we worked on, The Long Earth, is about a whole uh, a universe full of parallel Earths that you can simply walk into, each one slightly different from the rest. So it's a big idea that I think was too big in a way for Terry, who likes to work with individual people. So when we collaborated, I brought the kind of framework, the maps and timelines and so on of how this this universe could be structured. But what what Terry was brilliant at was getting hold of a character and really drilling down into their motivation. Our character Joshua is a the lead character of these, these books is is a young boy who is particularly adept at stepping into these other worlds. And so he becomes he becomes a kind of reluctant hero in a way, but he becomes a kind of, be kind of he becomes a kind of Daniel Boone recluse, um, uh, just going off for sabbaticals as he calls them and losing himself in the wilderness basically. And Terry was was really good at drilling right down into the motivation of this character with his troubled background. You know, he's an orphan and and and, and so on. Um, so that that's one big difference was uh, this really deep characterization, uh, uh, which which Terry was capable of. You you clearly need characterization in SF, and I think it's underrated actually. Um, how good the best are at, at characterization, Clark and Wells, for instance. But they fulfill, fulfill a certain role in in SF. The the hero is really the idea, or maybe the universe itself, you know, is, is, is a character overwhelming everything else. And there's no room for this kind of really deep characterization that you might get in mainstream fiction. Uh, but Terry made it, had a good go of it, I think, in, in well, in, the, in Discworld as well, with characters like Commander Vimes, you know, his, his alcoholic copper, uh, and so on. Or, or Tiffany Aching, his young adult heroine. Uh, he got really deeply into the heads of these people in this fantastic world. Uh, so I think that's one, there's certainly one difference is the balance of characterization versus uh, ideation, if you like. Yeah. I saw a quote that said that as a writer, your order and Terry was chaos, and it was kind of an interesting mix of order and chaos when you came together. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah. Did I say that? Uh, somebody said it anyway. But uh, yeah, uh, at one point we were trying to figure out. Um, uh, the structure of the long earth, infinite in principle, but how could you, uh, make it more interesting? Uh, each is slightly different from the rest, and I thought in a fairly linear way. You know, each slightly different until after about a hundred worlds you get to an ice age world, and you go a bit further into a dinosaur world and so forth. But Terry was all for, uh, randomness, you know. Suppose you go along ten worlds and then suddenly bang, it's entirely different from anything you expect. Uh, so it could be, a desert world in the middle of the ice ages, but it could, but it could be something very strange, like one of his favorites was a cube ball world, entirely smooth, like an abstraction. It's just nothing there. There's air to breathe and so forth, but there's blank landscape, nothing there at all, like a huge skating rink, maybe, <laughs> or a roller skating rink, great for roller skating. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, so Terry liked to uh, break this up with, with just random um, changes and so forth. Um, and we talked to a mathematician at one point, Ian Stewart, who collaborated with Terry on the Science of Discworld books, talking about this kind of structure. And, and Ian said in Modern Thinking with the mathematicians, yeah, the, 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 the most uh, fertile kind of structures you can have are, are a balance between order and chaos. Um, where, for instance, a fighter plane, modern fighter planes are um, deliberately made unstable. Um, all controlled by computer, so that if it's unstable, you can deliberately flip it quickly into another state, so you can do very fast turns and quick maneuvering and so forth. So it's managed chaos in a way. Um, so, so this mathematician said maybe our long Earth was that kind, the same kind of thing. It's 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 orderly, but it's on the edge of chaos. So interesting things could happen the whole time. You're about to tip over the edge of the wave. Um, so yeah, so I think I think between me and Terry, this this clash of order and chaos was uh, was quite productive in the end. One thing I did make, I was careful to do right from the beginning, was to make a note of every mad random idea we had <laughs> and try and get as many of them into the early books as possible, just in case we want to come back to them later, you know, in case it turned out to be really good <laughs> as a sort of hook for the sequels. And that paid off, I can tell you. <laughs> yeah. I was also just curious if you had seen the Sci-Fi Channel adaptation of Childhood's End and if so, what you thought of that? Oh no, haven't seen it actually. No, no, no. So I'm, I'm behind on that one, I'm afraid. Uh, okay.
So then you said uh, in an interview, uh, NASA, I'm afraid, has become a sclerotic big organization locked into the space station project, which will generate a lot of jobs, but little else. I was wondering if you could say what you think we should be doing in terms of near-term space exploration. All right. I think that's probably a fairly old quote, which, uh, but, uh, which I suspect uh, um, it was valid 15 years ago, maybe. Uh, yeah, I did a lot of research on, in, into NASA when I wrote my, my novel Voyage that I mentioned earlier. Um, it's alternate history of, of the space program in the 70s and 80s and a couple of other books later. And not, they were extremely generous. You know, there's a lot of science fiction fans in NASA, you can imagine. And uh, I was shown around uh, the hardware, crawled around the space shuttle simulator, saw a shuttle launch, which is an astounding experience, very physical experience, you know, very visceral. Um, and shown some of the plans they were drawing up, drawing up at the time for um, uh, uh, Mars missions, if if the call ever came. Um, but yeah, but when the space station, I've, I've never been a big fan of that project, to be honest, because it does seem, it, it has kept people in space, which is a good thing. It's kept a presence in space. We've learned some uh, lessons from it, but we could have done much more for the money, I, I tend to feel. And when you, if you go around NASA, well, this was, this was true about 15, 10, 15 years ago at least. You, know, you, you did get the impression that it was a, it was kind of hanging on, you know, you want a long program with an extended deadline, which never actually gets anywhere, but keeps the jobs going. But you can understand why that was from the, the Apollo peak of, I think it was like half a million people employed in the space program, I mean, the contractors, including the contractors as well, at the peak. So what do they do when Apollo is gone and the, the program starts shrinking? Um, so I, I was, I was a, have been quite a fan of Robert Zubrin, you know, of Mars Direct, looking for lean, mean ways of, of, of getting to Mars quickly, whittle it right down in the, in, in the spirit of the sixties, actually, you know, uh, they, they, uh, before Apollo, there was a pretty expansive, uh, long-term program for building gigantic successes to the Saturn V and using those to get to Mars. In the end, they focus on the goal, just get to the moon with a Saturn V, a kind of middle-sized rocket, do it quickly with this ingenious way of landing a separate lander. Or lots of ways to save mass and size and development time and so forth. Just go for the goal. So, and, and I think until once Zubrin's work came along, which must be about 20 years ago now, I, I couldn't quite see why they this wasn't taken with more enthusiasm by NASA and by you know Congress and the, those who, who, who hold the purse strings as well. Um, I spoke to Clark a lot about, about this actually and I asked him whether he was disappointed that the kind of ultimate future that we describe in Medusa didn't come about with missions to Jupiter by the end of the century and so on and he said no, he wasn't disappointed at all he said that realistically when he started back in the 30s or the 40s he didn't really believe I don't think that humans would walk on the moon in his lifetime or that we'd get as far as we have He's kind of disappointed that we stopped at the moon in terms of human exploration, but he loved all the deep space, deep space exploration, the, the voyages to the to the outer planets and so on. And he worked it into his fiction. It inspired his fiction. Um, uh, the internet, the early internet, was great for him because he just got onto the NASA sites and and downloaded everything they had. He loved it. And so now, you know, I, I, I think NASA now is, is 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 more going in in the right direction. I'd say, given the constraints on them. Um, very imaginative missions, um, some great science being done. Uh, I, so, yeah. Unfortunately, I don't think in my lifetime we're going to see a human walk on Mars because the huge funding boost will will never be there. There may be some motive for, do, for doing it, discovering life, for instance, and a real motive motive to get there. But um, uh, uh, you know, I have to praise the the half of NASA that does the unmanned, uh, the uncrewed probes, and the, the the fabulous science over the years, which well, I talked about this before, it's absolutely transformed humanity's vision of the universe in my lifetime, and, and indeed mine, mine as well. Yeah, you also in that same interview you you were talking about how we're at this absolutely critical moment in human history. You say if we get it wrong over the next few decades, our descendants, if there are any, might not forgive us. Well, I think that could be true, don't you? You know, um, um, the, the challenge of the climate shift seems very real to me you can argue forever about whose fault it is <laughs> but but you know we, we've just had a series of record highs in terms of average temperatures for the months in britain we're, we're, it was predicted 20 years ago and i remember, I remember distinctly 
the, the, the long-term forecast for Britain was more storms, basically. We're stuck between a continent and an ocean, masses of turbulent air, more storms, which is exactly what we've had now. And so year on year, we're having to beef up our flood defences and so forth. And it's chaotic as well, to go back to the theme of, the, the of order versus chaos. These massive storms could hit anywhere. You know, we had it in my region a couple of years ago, well, about five years ago. Um, uh, this last winter, it was the other side of the country and so on. So really, if you take a long view, it's, it's working out exactly as as, uh, as planned. At the same time, we've got the challenge of the oil running out and, 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 and so forth. And the, the very fact that the energy sources we need to use to fix these problems could potentially worsen the climate problems as well. But we still have a window to act, it seems to me. We, we still have a window to um, do things like um, clean up... Uh, the power generation systems and maybe use off earth resources to um, support the earth uh, as we go towards it seems to be these two competing goals one is a high civilization which supports everybody to a high standard of living high meaning you know as we have in the western countries and the other goal being a healthy stable ecology going forward to, to future generations as well so it's one heck of a challenge but uh, you know, I think I think we're aware of the of the importance of both goals, and I think I'm fundamentally an optimist. You know, I mean, you know, anyone of my age has lived through the the horrible fear of of, of nuclear war soon. I think I think I think when my generation were kids, we didn't think there'd be a nuclear war tomorrow, but I think we didn't think we'd grow old. Sometime between now and then, you know, we thought the bombs would fall, so we'd never get to plant a tree in a garden and see it grow fully. That that kind of thing, you know. Nightmares seem to have gone away, and now there are different kind of nightmares for the new generations coming up. But I'm, I'm basically an optimist if we can survive the threat of nuclear war, and the, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall, and all that happened. Then I think I think we can we can muddle our way through this in the end. But yeah, it's 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 a it's a challenge that we can't uh, we can't shirk. But previous generations haven't shirked their challenges. And going back to Clark's generation, you know, they, the West stood up to the Nazis, even though that was a huge human and political and economic hit if you look at it that way we, we all came out of it better in the end yeah absolutely all right so, uh, so we're pretty much out of time so just do you have any final words you want to say or any projects you want to mention or anything like that uh no i think i've covered everything haven't i was <laughs> you sir uh, uh yeah i will just say my, my my next i suppose my next the projects i'm working on now my own solo projects so a break a break from collaborating <laughs> <laughs> um off to the far future um my own starting point was uh a universe called the Zeli uh, sequence. Do you, do you know the, the Zelius X double yeah. Um Off in the far future, and that—that's a real expression of my own influences, I think, including Clark. So my first stories and books were set in that universe, and I kept on going back, which I think is a good idea. Clark kept on going back to some of his early works and rewriting them, reworking them, expanding them. And it's not a bad idea, I don't think, because the beginning is where you're unconscious is more in control of your creative process than your consciousness. So looking back to that is a good way of thinking, what, what am I really interested in? What are my real concerns? You know? So my, my current project is a rework of, 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 of some of that stuff, kind of reboot with, with you know, you know, my, my, my current sensibilities, more modern science and so forth. Uh, so that, that, that's great fun. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I'm really looking forward to that. And so we've been speaking with Stephen Baxter. And this new book, once again, it's called The Medusa Chronicles with Alistair Reynolds. So, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And that was our interview. So a big thanks again to Stephen Baxter for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Matt Kressel, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Matt writes, I've been listening to the Geek's Guide to the Galaxy podcast for a while now, lately while I go to the gym and I really enjoy the episodes that host David Barkertley produces. There are always thoughtful, intelligent discussions, and David is always well-prepared for his guests. For example, it's pretty obvious that before each guest comes on, if it's an author, he reads their books, sometimes many of them, and has lots of questions to ask. Not the superficial ones that you usually hear in mediocre interviews, but really intelligent questions about specific details, thoughts, and ideas from someone's work. I've been enjoying these podcasts for a while, and I thought it was high time I gave back, so I just signed up for their Patreon. Even if you don't donate, I highly recommend this podcast if it's not yet on your radar. So big thanks again to Matt Kressel for supporting us on Patreon, and if anyone else out there wants to send us a dollar or two per episode, 
You can sign up to do that over at patreon.com geeks. You can also sign up to make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And I'd like to give a special thank you to Ricardo Santos, who just became PayPal patron number 138. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.